The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Uh, uh, we're going to put on the screen now, if you guys can throw it up there, a narrative painting that's going to frame pretty much tonight what I want to talk about for the next 34, 35 minutes. And it uh, hopefully will proved to be a context in which our reflection upon relationship will really find some passion, heart, uh, some, some real connection in terms of things that are going on inside of us before we are believers and after we become believers. Uh, my hope would be tonight as we walk through the, the big relational story that God is telling from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation my hope would be that we would really see so much of what Bob was talking about in terms of this, uh, this ultimate theme of humility and hospitality and how it's actually the humility of the gospel, it's the humility of Jesus that liberates us, that levels us, that indicts us and invites us into a lifestyle of hospitality. And I think that's just one of the most amazing uh, theological ways of framing the entire story of the Bible, um, the welcoming heart of God in creation, the welcoming heart of God, God's hospitality in full view of, of our own rebellion, the humility that it took to sign on as our God to be such an outrageous Redeemer, committing to have a family from every single race, tribe, tongue, and people group, and eventually to plant them in what will prove to be the Garden of Eden on steroids. Place, the coming city that we see in Scripture as new heaven and new earth. So we want to talk about that big narrative tonight because it will help us understand uh, what, what is marriage, what is singleness, what is friendship. What indeed, as Bob told us, what what... How do we possibly wrap our hearts around the calling that as the local church, the local church is God's primary means of announcing the beauty of the ultimate city, the ultimate story of redeemed and healed relationships that is not simply possible, not merely probable, but actual within the heart and the economy of our God. So let me just take one moment to pray for us. And then we're going to begin looking at this narrative painting, and I'm going to center our conversation tonight on one verse that really summarizes the life that God designed for us in the Garden of Eden. So let, let me just pray one more time for us. Father, thank you for the privilege of being in Denver this weekend. I thank you for this remarkable community. I thank you for this staff that is learning increasingly how to groan and grow in grace together. I thank you, Lord, for the hard work and the heart work that has been evidenced throughout the history of this church and evidenced, Lord, in so many communities represented here. Lord, I pray uh, for these uh, next several moments that it would please you by your Holy Spirit just transcend the noise of the day to help us, Lord, to experience 
the humility of the gospel and the hospitality of our God, that we would be deeply encouraged that, Lord, we would discover in fresh and profound ways that we're not, we're not just a bunch of whiners complaining about the world we do not like. We are, we are those who are defined by the echoes of Eden. There, there is within our bones, there is within our very DNA a longing for the life you designed for us in the garden paradise of Eden. Lord, let us hear those echoes and may we become increasingly nostalgic for the answering of that echo, which will be life in the new heaven and new earth, Lord, the the life of perfected relationship, the life of perfect society, the life of no more death and mourning and crying, the eternal life, Lord, of knowing the tear-wiping hand of God, not just wiping away our tears, but redeeming the pain behind those tears. Lord, Oh, that you would do that in our own hearts, in our churches, in our community. Come now, Lord, and tell us your story and let us again tonight see that Jesus is the only hero in that story and that in union with him, Lord, we too are a part of that great process of all things becoming new. Protect these whom you love and cherish from anything that I would preach or teach that does not Find its anchor in Scripture. Lord, I'm a foolish man. I'm a man that needs the gospel as much as anybody in this room. So have mercy on me as you feed and care for your children tonight. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, this painting briefly, let me, let me be very brief. Um, this, this is a, a, a piece of art that means a lot to me because it was born in our church family, a church family in Franklin, Tennessee, that I had the joy of planning with a bunch of good friends. And, and we were clueless about a lot of things when we planted that church. We really had a hunch that the grace of God was a lot more inviting, a lot more profound than most of us had experienced coming out of coming out of a big percentage of us, coming out of Southern spirituality, legalism, pragmatism, Christian moralism. A lot of us were uh, in in an intense longing phase for something other than we had always known as church. So when we planted a church, we said, let's study this thing that we're hearing about called the grace of God, and let's create a, a worship culture that will provide margins for lingering. Let's just not have a big hymn sandwich, two hymns and a big fat sermon and then get on with life. No, let's, let's listen to the story and begin to understand where it will take us existentially in our own stories, but how it will free us into a larger story that we're beginning to see the Bible is telling that unfolds from Genesis to Revelation. So as, as we were learning and growing as a congregation, uh, we learned more about the story of God as we were studying more of the gospel of God. And that gave rise to this piece of art. There's uh, uh, you know, so many great artistic people in the greater Nashville community. But one of the visual artists in our church family is a wonderful brother named David Arms, A-R-M-S. And uh, he is beloved by believers and non-believers alike. He's just a great artist. He's a, he's a guy that's tuned into beauty. Um, if you were to visit his uh, studio in Leaper's Fork, which is outside of Franklin, Tennessee, you'd see that he paints with a lot of birds and fruit and eggs, and there's just a lot of uh, nature and life 
in uh, David's work. And, and everything that he does is shaped by his growing understanding of the world that God made and the story that God is telling. And I, I got together with David uh, in our church family as a member of our church, and I said, I'd love for you, David, to create a painting that would tell the story of God so that every time we gather to sing unto the Lord or to learn more about the gospel, every time we gather to read the Bible, that in our worship space we would see the whole story. And, and, and we would begin to understand that any one part of the Bible fits within the larger story, that we don't understand any one verse, any one chapter, any one author apart from this, this narrative, the way God is telling his story through 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. And uh, I had in my mind uh, uh, the painting in a very basic form. I thought of four trees. In fact, I, made, I met with David at one of our Starbucks in Nashville, and I simply had a, a, a napkin and a little pencil drawing of four trees. And, and, and here's all I knew about the painting I wanted him to create that would tell the story of God. I knew I wanted uh, four panels, four trees. First tree and the last tree would rep represent the tree of life. Because when you read the beginning and the ending of God's story, you, you'll discover that there are two chapters that the Bible begins with and two chapters that the Bible ends with that alone claim to show us perfection, that alone, alone claim to be this is the world God designed and intended. Genesis 1 and 2, in the story of creation, we find the tree of life standing tall. And the tree of life in Genesis 1 and 2 is just a summary statement that the source and author of life, out of no need or loneliness, decided to create a world to reveal his beauty as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Indeed, we'll consider this tonight, that deep within our bones is, is the longing for relationship as it's reflected in the life of God himself, the life of intimacy and passion and connectedness and other-centeredness, the life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, tree of life created by our God, a world we know as Eden in which the first expression of community, the first expression of relationship, first expression of church is one man and one woman in relationship with God. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. So I, I knew I wanted the, the, the painting to have tree of life, and I knew I wanted the fourth panel to have the tree of life because what's fascinating when you get to Revelation 21 and 22 and the telling of the end of the story is the tree of life emerges again. And it's described with bigger terms, and, 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 it, and it's, more, uh, it's more inviting. It, it, it's just incredible the way John the Apostle that wrote the book of Revelation picks up the theme of tree of life as a theme of fulfillment. So I was, I was certain in my heart about that first tree and that last tree, two little stick trees on my little Starbucks napkin. But the middle two trees in the second and third panel also said we need trees here because Here's, here's a way we can think about the way God is declaring his, his, his extravagant humility as a redeemer and, and, and the absolute astounding reach of his hospitality. Uh, seen against that second panel, the tree of loss, your eyes now would go and you see that ashen gray, that, that, that pall of death that hangs over that second tree. That second tree is titled the tree of loss because it reminds us that, that sin and death 
uh, intruded, broke into the paradise, the world of Eden. And, uh, and, and it's, not that, uh, it's not that the first son and daughter of God simply were distanced from God, but, but disintegration, disease, decay went into play. And that tree is not dead, it's a decaying tree because God did not abandon his creation. Death came and the promise of death that was made was realized in that rebellion. So that second panel, again, envisioning the day that we would start worshiping as a community and remembering the whole story, that, that second tree is going to, uh, it needed to tell the story of, of loss and betrayal and tragedy. But then that third tree tree of life, tree of loss, tree of love. And that's, by the way, that's not a white little cross painted on that third tree. If you were to see the original painting, you would see that it's a see-through, uh, it's a see-through cross that the, the sky and the clouds of the horizon in that third panel, you, you see those through that, through that tree. And it was David Arm's appropriate way of saying that when we move into the theme of redemption, when we when we move into the costliness of what God as creator invested, spent to be God the redeemer, it takes us to a person, the person in the work of Jesus. So that third tree, the, the tree of love, it, it stands for the person in the work of Jesus. Again, leaning into the sure, secured future. So we know these four panels in the world of theological reflection as creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And that's the rhythm of the great art of this world. It's the rhythm by which we do life. You think of novels, you think of poetry, you think of film, and invariably there is some telling of the story, the, the, the unfulfilled longing or the the, the, the artist, the singer, songwriter that, that is alive to the angst of a, of a world that is so horribly broken, just screaming about that second panel and, and, and being able to declare the nature of alienation. And really, you see, alienation, loss, betrayal, hatred only have meaning against the possibility that something was right at one time. So, so how do we begin to wrap our heads and hearts around this? We're, we're here this weekend to talk about how Jesus changes relationship. But, but what is relationship? And what's the core relationship that God has made us for? Well, let me just share tonight principally one verse, and then I'm going to kind of walk through the rhythm of the story. And I think that will be about all the time we have for tonight before we move into some Q&A. But there's one profound verse that I think summarizes for us the depth of our relational longing and the privilege that we have as a people of the gospel to tell God's story. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, after you read Genesis 1 and 2, and you, you see the story, the narration, the creation of the world and the creation of God's first son and daughter made in his image and the commission that he gave them to move into the world he made to, to take the raw stuff of creation and create culture. You see this first man, this first woman, you see that they are different but equal. They are made vice regents. They are made co-partners in God's story of revealing his goodness, his truth, his beauty, filling the world with more image bearers 
and with his glory. Well, the, the summary of this incredible opening narrative that declares our God to be so spectacular in the revelation of his bounty and beauty, this summary statement in verse 25 at the end of chapter 2 says it all. And maybe you have, maybe you're very familiar with this verse, but maybe not the wonder of this verse. Right at the end of Genesis 2, summarizing the life of creation, that first panel, here's what the Bible says. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, as a young convert in the late 60s, I became a believer as a senior in high school in 1968, so that automatically dates me. So if you're doing the math, you'll know my next birthday, next February 1st, will be my 67th birthday. So I kind of put in the timeline for you where, where I show up in the story of Jesus, and there's just a lot of backlog about how I resisted that, and I de-churched before it was even popular, by the way. But, uh, but when I first heard that verse as a young believer in 1968, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I thought, well, that's kind of cool. You, you can, you know, when you, when you get married, you can be naked with the lights on and you're not embarrassed. Now, that's just the silliness of kind of where, as a young convert, you're just beginning to look at scriptures and you're trying to imagine what do these words mean. Well, really, that statement, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame, it's not primarily at all. It's not even specifically about the wonder of the gift of our sexuality and the joy of, of, the, of, of the passion and the nerve endings that God created and put within us to be fully enjoyed as husband and wife in a committed relationship. Oh, that is there. But principally what's going on is the man and his wife, the first man and the first woman, not even so much as a married couple, but the first man and the first woman were naked and felt no shame under the gaze of God. See, what's being profoundly spoken early in the Bible is this. What we want more than anything else is to be at home in the presence of God in such a way there's no need for posing or pretending or using fellow image bearers. And just, just allow that image to sit on your heart, land on your heart for a moment. I mean, to be before the gaze of God to have shame-free nakedness, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, in every sense of the term, in, other, in every sense of exposure. No need to lie. No need to, no need to hedge bets. No, no need to cover up. And that's what every one of us in this room wants. We want to be that free, that known by the God that made us, that alive to his purposes, his passion, and his delight, and to do it in community. Once again, that, that, that glorious verse is not, is not saying everybody is supposed to get married because as we go through the Bible, we see that singleness is incredibly highlighted as a very legitimate calling. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tries to argue some men and women into being like him. Look, don't, don't think you need to get married. You know, uh, be like me, Paul would say. Understand that, that the, the life of, of, of living to the pleasure of Jesus, it's far less complicated than being married. Can I get an amen by the married folk? I've been married 44 years and there have been definite seasons in my marriage when my wife and I would trade each other in for a Diet Coke. When we... <laughs> When we literally prayed, Lord, put two people out of their misery, take one of us to heaven. 
So uh, I, I get what Paul's talking about, but I also get the fact that those of us that are called to be married are to be married in the context of the larger story. And maybe we'll even touch on that some tomorrow night when I take us through a, a passage that really shows specifically how knowing Jesus is meant to impact every relationship. But let's, let's just camp out here a little bit. What we want is what God is pleased to give us. It's fascinating, even more so tragic, that Genesis 2.25 would have to use a negative descriptor to make a positive statement. The man and his wife were naked and felt no shame. See, there, there was a time when there was no shame. And in the Bible, shame is so different than guilt. And that's something we need to learn in our churches about the journey and the gospel, how the gospel doesn't just deal with our guilt, our legal guilt, but it does deal with this fractured of our soul called shame. See, shame in the Bible always is an issue of being seen. Always. And, 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 and th this credible statement of feeling no shame before the gaze of God says what? Uh, uh, I, I, I want to be with you. Uh, oh, oh, God, the knowledge of you is life itself. And, and you really begin to see what that looks like when you consider wisely why Bob and his community chose Coram Deo to be the title of their church before the face of God. You see, that's what we are made to be as a local church. Life in a community of broken men and women representing the fact that that second panel is our reality both internally and culturally, but life before the gaze of God becomes something so different because we're, we're, we're made for that kind of relationship. We're made to enter into the life of the Trinity. I don't know what that touches within your heart tonight. You see, uh, some of us tonight feel very, very lonely, but you're only going to understand that loneliness against the longing that God put in your heart to know Him as Father, Son, and Spirit. And I, I cannot overstate that aspect of our relational beauty and longing. I cannot overstate the anchoring it in the Trinity. In fact, you know, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament is in John chapter 17 when Jesus, just before he goes to the cross, he knows he's getting ready to climb upon a tree for you and for me, having lived a life of perfect obedience as our, as our substitute. Uh, Jesus, before he goes to the cross, he's praying and the disciples, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this broken, weak band of, 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 of men that are represented in every church, beautiful and broken. They're hearing Jesus pray. And Jesus, among many things, says, Father, I'm so looking forward to returning to you to enjoy the glory I knew before the world began. And, and in that one moment, as Jesus is going to the cross, well aware of the price he's about to pay, but also well aware of the benefit of that cross, he will purchase a people that will begin to enter into the very relationship he's describing that he has known forever with the Father. Father, I am so ready to know with you what I knew before we even created this world, before we created Eden. The joy and the passion we had of designing Eden about the day that, that as, as, as God, that we would open up the circle of our own intimacy and, and cr create, create a world, create a people to share it with. 
Again, the Spirit of God allowing us to feel deeply the longings that sometimes tragically get hijacked by misusing our bodies for cheap intimacy. The good longings that get wasted on thinking that, that if you marry the right person in the world, you'll be complete. Still looking at our family of origin and holding them hostage because they did not love us perfectly. The going from church to church to church until we find the perfect community that finally gets us. See, every relationship we're a part of now contradicts the longings that God has placed within our heart to live naked without shame before his gaze. Well, how does that story unfold? Let me just mention a few of the symbols in the painting, and uh, I'm illegally keeping an eye on the clock. Uh, as a pastor, I learned to love childcare workers, so I'm always aware of countdown clocks and the, the gift of babysitters. But uh, So I still have you legally for 13 more minutes in this part of our conversation. So a few of the symbols here, and a little bit more about um, the third and fourth panel. So David Arms has birds and fruit, butterflies and eggs. And, and, and let me tell you the story in this fashion, just to stir within you the sense of it is good to be in a church that takes the gospel seriously because it's going to connect us with the echoes of Eden. David chose the chickadee as a bird to kind of uh, reflect upon what was it like in the garden paradise of Eden. And the chickadee is just a glorious songbird. It's a, it's a beautiful call. It shows up early in spring. And that, and that one piece of fruit there is not um, the, the artist's way of saying we know that the the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was an apple. And so this reminds us that we were idiots. No, that one piece of fruit is, is compared to the outrageous quantity of fruit in the fourth panel. And I'll come to that in a minute. But that, that, that first, you know, reminding us that there, before we were broken, we were beautiful. Before depravity becomes an issue, the dignity of living with God before his gaze in community as a man and a woman called to, to multiply that community. But it tragically all got broken, right? And you see these two new birds now. You see a raven looking backwards and a raven looking forward. And, and in the context of the tree of loss, uh, the raven in the Old Testament stands for two things. It's a bird of judgment and it's also a bird of grace. Uh, the Lord promises that where rebellion uh, uh, where rebellion persists, there will be judgment. Why? Because he is a holy, loving God. And his own being will not be, it, will not, it cannot sustain the contradiction of the goodness and the truth and the beauty of the God who is Trinity. And so judgment must come when the contradiction of wonder is realized. And so that one raven looking back tells the story that God was not exaggerating. There was judgment as Adam and Eve rebelled. And yet the bird looking forward, we know that early in the story, God promised to be a great redeemer. And isn't it awesome to see how the story of redemption begins to unfold through the very rebel son and daughter who brought such peril to your heart and my heart, our world. It'll be through the seed of the woman, through, through this rebel son and daughter now clothed with God's provision of animal skin that ultimately the Messiah will come. God will use the weak things to confound the wise. God will tell a story of utter humility that we might enjoy the utter hospitality of a God that will welcome the nations. Therefore, that second raven looking forward reminds us that as God began to tell a story through the prophets, Elijah the prophet was in the wilderness and his was a lonely calling. Though God had promised to be a great redeemer, 
It's a lonely life to live in a world where implications of death are everywhere, but God is faithful. God makes promises God alone can keep. And so Elijah is fed by the raven in the wilderness, looking forward to the beginning, the cascading wonder of promise after promise being made about the God that takes a pagan man, Abram. Talk about the hospitality of God. God grabbing a hold of a, of a man named Abram among Ur of the Chaldeans, just a guy going on with life, trying to make his own life work in his own religious world, doing life. And God says, come, count the stars, count the sun, excuse me, count the stars, count the sand, count the dust. Abram, I'm going to make of you a great family. And through you, as I place you in a land for the outworking of my purposes, eventually, through what I'm going to do through you and your wife, making of you a nation that will be the national womb of the Messiah, eventually all families on the face of the earth will be blessed. God puts in motion the most hospitable story, and he'll use the most unlikely people to tell that story. And it grows, and it's hard, but it anticipates that God one day will provide the basis upon which such a a radical reorientation of relationship, relationship with God, relationship with ourself, relationship in the human community, relationship with the environment, relationship with culture, relationship with everything. Because Bob is right, that word righteousness is so key. See, before righteousness had to be a legal category, it described the life of Eden, the right alignment of everything. You're not just OCD that you want the, the refrigerator ordered and cleaned. There's a longing for order. Which is beauty. See, the, the righteousness of God is described more in terms of passion and delight and everything synergizing. It's the biblical word shalom. And shalom is the, not just the absence of conflict. It's the right ordering. It's the writing of all things that takes us to the third panel. And here's where David Arms begins to pick up on the theme of the gospel. And I love this because he shows us in the third panel, this is who we are now. You see three butterflies in an egg. I've already told you that that third panel telling the story of redemption is it puts our focus on not what we're called to do as the church, but what Jesus has done for us to be the church. Life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And a big part of the story, as you're learning it in part church and other churches represented here, a big part of the story is knowing that Jesus did not primarily come to be our model to follow, but our substitute to trust. He, he, he is not our second chance. He's the second Adam. Where the first Adam fell, the second Adam, the last man was perfect. Jesus lived in our place, fulfilling the law of God for us before he became our substitute upon the cross. And so this third panel is beginning to say, so from the, from the birth of Jesus through his uh, resurrection up to the return. How are we to think about what it means to be the people of God individually as the gospel's coming to us, but corporately as the gospel's running through us into into our cities? So why three butterflies? Because we know the way God tells his story, it will require the ultimate humility of the death of the Son of God. And and David Arms chose the butterfly because in the history of religious art, not just Christian art, but the history of art, butterfly tells the story of life emerging out of death. But why three butterflies? Because Christ died for you and for me. And the resurrection life that 
is principal to our understanding of the story, the, the, the death of the Son of God um, for us is the guarantee of our present resurrection to new life in the gospel and our assurance that one day resurrection life will be completed, including the resurrection of our own bodies, including the ultimate restoration of the world that Father, Son, and Spirit, this very world they made and called good. It's not throwaway. We're not in a story of replacement. We are in a story of restoration. Jesus never said, behold, I'm going to make all new things. He said, behold, I'm making all things new. And a church that sees it is a church that enters into the humility of the gospel. We begin to say, the only way we can begin to understand shame-free nakedness is through the work of grace in our lives. And it begins with a leadership culture in the church where the senior pastor becomes the chief repenter in the church, the, the chief grace dipsomaniac, and that means to thirst a lot. Dipso, Greek word for thirsting. You know who should be the thirstiest people in the church for the gospel? The leaders. You know, the, those living out gospel astonishment, the best should be the leaders, in increasingly groaning and groaning in grace, gospel astonishment. And, and, and that's why Jesus, on the night of his own betrayal, he disrobed himself and washed the feet of his disciples. And they were astounded that the, that the rabbi that they had come to begin to know as son of God, but would soon know as God the son, that the foot washing would lead to the heart washing of his own humility. And he said to them, blessed are you not just for being here, blessed are you that you'll understand this is the pace of grace. This is the way of life. This is the ultimate humility, the way I'm telling my story that will eventuate in the populating of the new earth with a pan-national family of men and women from every single race, tribe, tongue, and people group. So resurrection life is what we enjoy. Why the egg? Almost looks like a beautiful new age painting. In a, in a sense, it is. We kind of lost the language of new age to some of our contemporaries that, that appropriately knew the longing for a new age but failed to understand that really new age is biblical language for new creation life. And you see that in that third panel, as we think about the story of the gospel today, it, it's, it's Romans 8 when the Apostle Paul says that, that all of creation is groaning as in, the, as in the pain of childbirth. And then he goes on to say, and we too, along with creation, are groaning. We groan inwardly. We wait eagerly. So in essence, Paul's saying, here's what it means to be a church. We're all pregnant. We're all pregnant with glory. It's not a tumor. It's not indigestion. It's not bad pizza. There's a stirring within our heart individually for the completion of our salvation when we will be made perfect in love individually, but also collectively. So a healthy church, a gospel church, is going to be a church that, first of all, is remembering coming alive to the echoes of Eden. You, you, you see a beauty in the world that, that, that second panel thinkers cannot see, but you know there was something good before everything got screwed up, but God did not abandon his creation. Outrageously created this story that he's telling that centers on Jesus, and, and it's an already and, not yet, already and not yet story. Already are we raised to new life? Already do we taste the powers of the coming age as the church? Jesus heals some of us, and to others of us, he gives, he gives sufficient grace, and we don't try to figure it out. But our hearts are longing for the 
fourth panel and the ultimate fulfillment of, of, of all of the relational dignity and beauty and, and weight within our souls. In fact, that fourth panel, in, in my last two minutes, let me go there. I may fudge and take one extra minute, but that will be all. Look at the fourth panel and, and, and hear the story of the Bible showing us that, that we're, not, we're not called to get back to Eden. You know, as a 60s person, a lot of our 60s music was about trying to get back to Eden. Or Steinbeck's great novel, East of Eden. The Bible does not so much say that we're east of Eden as much as it says we're west of the new earth. Because you see, the end of our story is better than the beginning. It's why if you notice the horizon of these four trees, you see the tree of life in the Garden of Eden is positioned high on the, high on the uh, horizon of the, of the panel. The, the tree of loss shows the fall. Tree of love, we're, we're making movement and resurrection life. We should expect uh, a, a first fruits presence of the coming kingdom as we do church together, as we love, as we love the city, as Bob told us, reminding us the words of Jesus. We love our enemies. It's not us versus them. It's all of us needing Jesus together. But, but the hope that's within our soul is for that fourth panel. And there you see the, the, the tree that's even off the canvas. In fact, when I walked into David Arm's office, the first time he invited me to finally see the painting and I it, you know, my OCDness, I wanted to show up and watch him and inform him how to do the painting, but I stayed away. But when I first went into a studio with three friends, I thought quietly to myself, oh my gosh, he didn't measure well. The fourth tree didn't make it completely on the panel. He had such good Bob Toon order everywhere else. But you know, and, and, and finally I had the courage to say, uh, can you tell me about some of the tree not being on the panel? Here's what, he just laughed. He said, Scotty, do you really think I can contain Everything God has secured for us in the new earth on that panel, of course the tree of life is off the canvas. And of course, the promised fruit, the glorious fruit of the month club. Do you all remember the fruit of the month club in Seinfeld episode? I should not have said that, but that's the way ADD works. I uh, free associate. Uh, Tree of life is described in Revelation 21 and 22 as bearing a new fruit every month. That doesn't mean literally pick your favorite 12 fruits and they're going to be there. It's God's story of abundance. See, the first, you know, our, our relational longing, our story began with a wedding. First man and the first woman married to God. And the story ends with the whole family of God married to Jesus, the wedding feast of the Lamb, and the fullness. And these three birds, these are three birds that would never ever flock together in this world. Each one of them are in full bloom, and they are in the shade, in the wonder, in the glory of the new Jerusalem, the new earth. And this is the story of the reconciliation of the nations. This is the story of the ultimate fulfillment of every promise God has made, which finds its yes in Jesus. Now, in summary, what are we saying tonight as we begin our time together? As C.S. Lewis said, God does not find our longings dangerous. He finds them too tame. We are made to live with shame-free nakedness before the gaze of God. And we get that now in the gospel. Do we understand that to know Jesus means that right now... God loves us as much as he loves Jesus, and we can't do anything about it. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. That, the, that the, the misapplication of your relational longings that we attach to pornography or sleeping around or a hookup generation or, or whatever it might be, it's anchored to something so awesome that finds its heart and home in the gospel. 
Let's just continue this week in thinking about, Lord, thank you for such a magnificent story that highlights our need, but even more highlights your provision. Dear ones, the story ends with the very world we live in now not being annihilated, but being made new. One day, the knowledge of the glory of God is going to cover Denver as the waters cover the sea. And we're going to tell that story as congregation by congregation, as Christian by Christian, rubbed into every sphere of the culture of the surrounding cities, begins to live out the humility of the gospel and the hospitality of our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the wonder of the creator of the universe riding into Jerusalem on the back of a foal and knowingly and willingly and gladly coming to grips with our shame by being shamed for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to be far more willing to risk the call to relationships. Lord, we want our marriages to tell your story. We want our life in the body of Christ to tell your story. We want our leadership culture to give evidence to a whole community of the followers of Christ, that this is what happens when the gospel goes deeper. Leaders repent. Leaders are humble. Lord, thank you. We praise you. We bless you. We, we, we commit the rest of this weekend to you. Have your way in the Q&A. Have your way in whatever you would do even now. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.